Good morning and Merry Christmas. This morning we're going to be opening to Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55. If you would like to open there in your Bibles or it is in the inserts, the yellow insert in your bulletin. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has, shown great, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great gift of your word. We thank you that it does not return to you void. We thank you that it is here for our good, for our building up, for our reproof, for our correction. We pray that you would be work at work within us right now by your spirit that you would Give us eyes to see and ears to hear this great message of great joy. Help us, Lord, to hear this in such a way that we rejoice, to hear it in such a way that we are changed people, to hear it in such a way that as we leave this place, our neighbors and our friends and our colleagues can see it. We pray that your name would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So you may be wondering why we are going back to Luke 1. Well, on Christmas Eve, we were in Luke chapter 2. Why have we gone back in the story? On the one hand, yes, we're going backwards. But on the other hand, what Mary is singing here teaches us how to react to great news of great joy. What we just read is referred to in Latin as the Magnificat. You may have heard that word or Many beautiful classical renditions of it. Many composers and singers have arranged this text, being inspired by the beauty of it, of what Mary is saying, both poetically and thematically. Often throughout the Christian tradition, when people have looked at this text, what they have focused on is Mary. And that's not a bad thing. Mary is, I think, a better character than we give her credit for, a more important one, and we as Protestants often can use the corrective of being made to look at her a little bit more closely, to rejoice in her faithfulness, to be impressed and inspired by her witness to obedience. And yet it's important that we realize that Mary is an incredible character, not because she is somehow more than human, not because she is somehow herself great enough to be uh, imitated, but because she has her eyes so firmly fixed upon our Lord and Savior, and because 
when this great news comes to her, she receives it with that joy. What Mary does after hearing the incredible news that we have heard, the incredible news that the angel delivered to her, that should inform the way this Christmas season and going past Christmas, that we worship, that we live, that we remember this story. Do you ever feel when the Christmas season is over, either a sense of great relief that the stress is all done, that all the presents have been bought, all the food has been cooked successfully or unsuccessfully, all of the relatives have stepped out the door and there's peace again? Or have you ever felt, or do you remember having felt as a child, that sense of kind of mourning after the loss of this season of peace? For so long, maybe you had hoped to get that one present and, and then you got it, and then afterwards the, the joy of the anticipation, the joy of the anticipation even of that wonderful Christmas Eve service that I have always looked forward to every year. The anticipation is gone. Maybe we struggle with that mourning afterwards of, well, now we're just back to normal. And Mary teaches us something about how we react to that coming of that great news of great joy. When Mary receives the joyful announcement, and after she hears the confirmation of it from her relative Elizabeth, she rejoices but she does so in a very particular way. She does so in a way that redefines everything that she was thinking about her life and about the life of the world around her. She redefines the way that she looks at Israel. She redefines the way that she looks maybe at Rome, of her own expectations of her future. The whole story of history, in a way, has been redefined, and she rejoices in this. This is a challenge to us this Christmas time. When everything is unwrapped, when everything is done, do you return unchanged from this message of great joy? Do you return untouched to your daily life, to your hopes and dreams in other places? Or does the good news of Jesus' coming in the flesh to deliver his people, does that cause you to redefine everything about yourself and everything about the world around you. This is the challenge at Christmas time. It's a beautiful challenge. There is a challenge to us. C.S. Lewis once said, you have never encountered a mere mortal. Everyone you meet, everyone who you speak to, everyone maybe who you serve food to, everyone even who you snub, he says, is a person who is immortal, a person who will spend eternity in heaven or in hell, everyone who you meet, everything that you do, we could say, has those immortal ramifications. Everything is important, not only because we want to take this life seriously, but because Jesus has come and said so. Jesus has come in the flesh to make everything in our lives work together for good if we are in him. Does that fill you with great joy? Does that cause you to rethink everything? Read with me verses 47 to 49. Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. It's unlikely that Mary was overstating her humble estate. The Christian emphasis on humility 
has led over the succeeding centuries to humility as a form maybe of, of social nicety. Maybe somebody complimented your cooking this last Christmas and you said, oh, it wasn't that hard. It was just a couple things. I just threw it together. Humility has become, out of a good instinct, I think, has become a form of social nicety that we don't want to overstate ourselves. But this is not really the way that things were in the first century. It was more common to really uphold who you were. And so when we hear Mary saying, I am a, you, know, you have looked upon the humble estate of your servant, that humility, I think, is real. It's, it's not overstated. And yet she doesn't do this. She doesn't call herself humble either to complain or to overstate or to point to herself. What she does is she points to her humility in order to point to the greatness of God's might. When God acts in mighty ways, he frequently, as we see throughout Scripture, he frequently does so with the humble, with the lowly. We think of David, maybe, the least of his brothers, the one who wasn't even worthy to be called in from the field when Samuel came calling, and yet God delighted to use him, the least, the lowest. Life likely would have been difficult for Mary. She wasn't engaged to some prestigious member of society. She was engaged to marry a carpenter, as Dr. Fowler said on Christmas Eve, likely a stonemason. It was rough work. It was work that wasn't impressive. It was work that likely didn't pay as well as they may have liked. There's nothing to tell us that they were poor, but there's also a high likelihood that they were living within very modest means and that their children as well would have expected to live within those means. In our culture, there's a great expectation, and I think in a good way, that who your parents were don't necessarily, doesn't necessarily determine who you are. My dad was an engineer, and I decided to go into music, and that wasn't all that surprising. We don't always follow our parents, but in this culture, the expectation was that a humble family was going to remain humble, that a carpenter would bear carpenters, that a stonemason would bear stonemasons. And so God comes to a place where humility was not only a temporary thing, not only a mild inconvenience, but a definition almost of who they were. And so Mary calls herself humble, and she does so to magnify the power of God. He who is mighty has done great things for me, and blessed is his name. Mary tells us that both, well, when God shows his power in the meek and humble, and those who the world counts as inferior, he does two things. He honors those people, and he magnifies his own glory. And Mary shows, in this case, that God is doing both of those things. God's glory is magnified in his care for his humble servant. At the same time, God's glory doesn't demean or diminish Mary. The increase of his glory does not diminish the glory of his servants. Rather, it elevates it. Again, many of us have probably heard this passage interpreted as a message about Mary, as a message of her greatness, maybe even of her superhumanness. 
But she puts these words about her blessedness between two statements. He has looked upon the humble estate of his servant, and he who is mighty has done great things for me. As we look at our own blessedness, as we should at this time, as we should in this season, is a time of great joy and of great thanksgiving. We ought to do so in a way that is sandwiched between those he has done great things, he has cared for his servants. This is the main point of this song. Our God is mighty, is mighty. Our God is a mighty God. And now, having cried out in praise of God's might, Mary goes on to explain why. Why is she crying out these great praises, these great just rejoicings in his glory? This is a common technique in the Psalms. What they will do is they'll first cry out in praise, and then they'll go on to give some context to that praise, to expand the ideas of that praise. And the reason Mary gives for her praise is that God is not only a God of great might, and this is important, but he is a God of incredible affections. He is a God of great warmth, of great mercy for the downtrodden. Verse 51 says, He has shown great, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. You may notice that this foreshadows the Beatitudes, those counterintuitive statements in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, where Jesus says, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor, blessed are the weak, blessed are the hungry. And Mary ties these things into the might of God that she has just praised. So here's the truth of this. If God is not a God of might, then the weak are not blessed. If God is not a God of might, then the poor are not blessed. If God is not a God of might, then the hungry are not blessed. But in fact, the lowly are blessed because God has the might to bring down the mighty from their thrones and to exalt those of humble estate. The meek are blessed because God has the might to scatter the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. The hungry are blessed because God has the might to fill them with good things while the rich he sends away empty. There's something about being in need being hungry, being sick, being poor, that can make us feel completely alone. Maybe you felt this way at points in your life. It starts to feel like either no one cares about what you're going through or no one can relate to what you're going through. And like you can't ask for help, like maybe you don't deserve to have enough. Maybe you don't deserve to come out of poverty, to come out of hunger, to have what you need. Have you ever felt that way? Maybe you've never been in that dire a situation, but probably all of us at one point or another have felt that brick wall between your heart and any hope, between your heart and anyone else who could help you. Let's get a little bit more specific. Have you ever had to ask for money from your parents or from your relatives at a time or at an age when you felt like you shouldn't have to do so? When you felt like you were out of the house and you were successful, and then your tables turned. Do you remember what that feels like? Often we would almost rather live with our need than reveal it to someone who could help because 
we would rather not be seen in the state that we're in. And so when Scripture tells us that God cares for the humble and for the poor and for the hungry, he isn't just setting forth his social activism plan. He isn't just setting forth an economic plan to raise people out of poverty. There's a personal, there is an emotional side to this. There is a sense in which he is not only entering their lives, but entering their hearts to draw them up. What God says to people in such a position over and over throughout Scripture is, I see you, and in my might, I care for you. He is not only someone who has great might and yet is uninterested, nor is he someone who cares greatly and yet is unable to help, but he is in his might a God who cares. In our need, we get to see God's might and his care. When we are brought into that place, when there is that brick wall between your heart and hope, between you and any hope of getting out of this situation, it's in that moment frequently when we get to see God's might and his care, when we are brought to the place when we cast all our hope, all our anxiety and all our care at God's feet. And he is glorified in us even as he raises us up. Now, we're going to take a bit of a turn. This is a really, just an incredible psalm. And that's really what it is. It's in the form of a psalm of praise, is what it would be called. As you examine it, as you try to work through what exactly Mary is doing, she just does some incredible things in this psalm. It really reminds you of the Spirit's work of inspiration, of just the, how does a poor girl from Nazareth write such incredible poetry. So what Mary does is she takes this psalm where she has already gone through that pattern of extolling God and then explaining why. And by the end of the psalm, we realize that she wasn't just writing about herself, but that she somehow has become representative and standing in for all of Israel. It begins by saying, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. But by the end, it transitions with the statement, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation, so that by the end we read, not simply that he has helped Mary, but that he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. It's really an incredible way of writing, an incredible way of showing what God has done. Mary's humble estate, her humility, her need and hunger for the Lord became representative of all Israel in a time when they were exiles in their own land, when the right worship of God was polluted by the proud and the rich and the mighty. Not only the Romans, but even by the Pharisees, by the Sadducees, by those who were in control of Israel. And Mary praises first God's might, then his mercy, not only for herself, but as the very purpose toward which God had been working throughout Scripture, the very purpose which he had for his people, Israel, the very purpose which he had throughout history. She says, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers to Abraham 
and to his offspring forever. Again, notice that whereas Mary is given the title of the Lord's servant earlier in the psalm, here, as frequently in the Old Testament, it's Israel that's referred to as God's servant. Now, Abraham is mentioned specifically here, and there's a reason for that. Abraham is the beginning, in many ways, of Israel's story. We know that he is not the very beginning of the Bible, but that promise given to him in Genesis 12, in many ways, kicks off all the expectations, all the hopes, not only for Israel, but that in Abraham's seed, all nations would be blessed. And yet, if you remember Abraham's story, you remember that it was not a story of immediate fulfillment, not an easy story, not a story that you would necessarily want to live through, but that in his old age and in Sarah, his wife's old age, they were barren. They were unable to have a child. And not only that, they were far beyond the years in which childbearing was reasonably expected. If you remember this story of Abraham, what does God do? He waits and he lets Abraham try to accomplish it on his own with his servant Hagar. He lets him try to accomplish God's mercy and his promises on his own might. And yet, in God's forbearance and his patience with Abraham, he still says, no, by your wife Sarah, the one who it seems impossible that she will bear a son, in her you will have a son. By her, your people will come. By her, you will be Abraham, not just a father of nations, but a father of many nations, the man in whose seed all nations will be blessed. And 2,000 or so years later, the nations do not seem to be blessed through them. And Mary's song reminds us that hope, that promise was not in vain. That hope that was given so long ago has not faded from God's mind, has not become a side note in history, but has been the point the whole time through. As they went into exile under Assyria and under Babylon, as they came back and yet did not fully re-inherit the land, but were under other kingdoms, God's promise of mercy was at the center of his heart the whole time. Over the centuries, the promise given, the promise of mercy to God's people, it was preparing them in their neediness, in their humble estate, in their hunger, for the time when God would exalt the lowly, for the time when he would scatter the proud, as he had done partially before but would do so much more fully. And we see that all of those times before were only pointing forward. And it's in this situation that Mary sings, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. What more fitting response to this great time of salvation. Again, why preach the Magnificat after Christmas? We've heard the good news of great salvation. We've heard the story of Christ coming as the answer to so many prophecies, as the fulfillment of God's promises. And the question as we asked earlier, is what do we do now? Do we return to the status quo? Do we return to work or to school or to whatever we are doing without being changed? Or do we rejoice? Does that rejoicing change us? How do we live 
in light of the incarnation, not only for the month of December, but for the rest of our lives as it ought to. Have you realized how far God came down to rescue sinners like you and I? Have you realized in this season how great his mercy was and is? And if you have come to realize it, have you followed Mary in rejoicing in it, in redefining your life accordingly? Your story is not one of just doing enough to get by day to day. Wherever you came from, whether you viewed yourself as humble or great, whether you viewed yourself as poor or rich, hungry or well-filled, know that you come to Christ, that we all come to Christ, humble and in need of salvation. We all come to him not as one with something to give, but as one with everything to receive. And yet the God of the universe thought it well worth the cost to empty himself and come in the form of a child, even as a servant for you and for your salvation. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty, not just in an inn in Bethlehem, but in your life as well. This is a season more than, any, more than ever when you can take stock of those things. How God has exalted you from lowliness, how God has exalted you from a hunger, maybe not a physical hunger, but from a spiritual hunger. You and I can sing with Mary, he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. This new year, let that be the truth that defines us. I hope that that is the theme of this and of every year. He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. As we pray now, as we go home and pray this week, it's something to pray about and to meditate on to be thankful of all of these ways that God has blessed us, not only in clear and material ways, but in ways where we can view our humility, where we can view our need, our hunger, our poverty, spiritually and maybe physically, and see his great care for us and the way that that can transform our life, that everything that you do every moment, every day, is marked by that great promise of great joy that began with the coming of our Savior.